so t- tomorrow, uh, heading up to Sacramento, uh, about 150 pastors are gathering. We're going to be contending for S- uh, AB 2943, a uh, direct attack on the First and Fourteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Section 4 of the U- California Constitution. It is a direct violation of our religious liberties. It is an, a terrible law. I don't care how you feel about the issue. The law itself is a violation of constitutions. Now, let me just say this to you. How many rights does the U.S. Constitution give us, and how many rights does the California Constitution give us? None. Both constitutions were designed to protect the rights we already have from God. And if our legislators do not hold to that constitution, we, the people, the sovereign, have to hold them accountable. And so we're going up to contend. And, and, and um, it, it's going to be a remarkable day. And, and so two of the speakers that are going to be up there, one uh, I'd had the privilege to meet through uh, Shannon Grove, who will soon to be uh, state senator um, in Bakersfield. And she was an assemblywoman who got me to run in the race, and I consider her my mentor. She's an amazing woman, loves the Lord. She introduced me to a man named Kevin McGarry, who is the president of the Frederick Douglass Foundation. Kevin and I, during the assembly, had some conversations over the phone. But it wasn't until of late uh, that uh, we were doing an event in downtown Los Angeles at a charismatic Korean church, and Kevin and I had the chance to really get together and realize, why haven't we been spending more time together? Because uh, we, you're, you're going to see that we were brothers separated at birth. We look completely alike. And, um, and, and, and then I wanted him. I said, do you know a guy named Bill Federer? And, and Kevin said, no, I don't. And I said, oh, man. And, and, and Bill doesn't know Kevin. And I'm thinking, how did this happen? These are two circles that need to be concentric. And so uh, when both of these men are going to be up in Sacramento, Kevin's doing a press conference, and and all of our forces joined with Church United and Kevin's organization. And Bill's going to be up there speaking and training the pastors. And both of them agreed to come and be with us this Sunday morning before we head up to Sacramento. And they're going to share with us. Uh, the first speaker that I'm about to introduce you to, his name is Kevin McGarry. As I told you, he's the president of the Frederick Douglass Foundation. But I want to tell you something interesting about Kevin. Uh, he and his wife, Tracy, uh, both of them were born into abject poverty. Uh, both of them lived in, in uh, government housing. Uh, they they were, were both in, in the realm of the welfare world. Kevin in San Francisco and Tracy in Detroit. Um, and Kevin's father was a raging alcoholic. Um, both of them had no hope and no future. And uh, both of them, by their faith in the Lord, bringing the two of them together, they've been married over 30 years. Their daughter's actually graduating from Columbia University. The two of them together started to search the scriptures, and they put aside their ethnicity to see what the scriptures say about topics. Because all of us have preconceived ideas that have been ingrained in us, whether as we're, you know, I'm Irish or Scottish or or African, or we can go down the list, and all of us have our preconceived ideas. But the Scripture is the final authority. And Kevin and Tracy sat down, they started to look at the Scriptures, and they realized, you know what? We got this. We're way off. And uh, this began a, a, um, a journey for them that has resulted in a ministry that has been such a profound blessing uh, to the state of California across the nation. And I want to see this man in front of more and more audiences. He has an uncanny ability of making the complex simple. um, And and, and, and the way he does it just blesses me. So I'm going to shut up and get him up here. Would you welcome my dear friend, Kevin McGarry. Uh, I got to tell you, I just love your pastor. I mean, what a, what a man. I mean, you know, a mighty man of God. 
Um, you know, it's funny. He's the culmination of wit, humor, charm, and uh, biblical knowledge. So, I mean, you know, rarely do you have this combination culminating in such a great man. So, yeah, he's a, he's a great man. Um, I'm seeing that you have a Sunday night service at 6 o'clock. And, uh, you know, Pastor Rob said, you know, to both me and uh, Professor Federer, he says, look, you know, you guys take as long as you want with the second service. So, so I'm thinking that we can just go right in, you know, because, you know, I, I'm about three, three and a half hours. Professor Federer probably has three and a half, four hours. Uh, we, we'll go from this service and then we'll go to the six o'clock service and we'll just kind of make it uh, a church day. How's that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need the elders to come up and lay hands on Kevin. <laughs> I, uh, I, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of what the Lord has given me to see about what's happening in our current climate today. And so I'm going to preface the talk with the subject that I'm really going to be you know, trying to hone in on is a holistic embrace of the gospel is the key to another great awakening. And fundamentally, what I hope that you'll leave with today is that the condition of America and the the people of faith, the church, as a part of that, uh, well, America is in the condition it's in because the people of faith have not fully embraced a, a holistic way to see the gospel. And uh, because if we did... We wouldn't have to fight, um, of, you know, this AB 2943. If we did, we wouldn't have to fight for our parental rights when they say, uh, we want to teach your kids, you know, grotesque uh, sexual, sexual education stuff. I won't spare the details, but it's quite graphic. Um, you know, as early as, you know, first, second, kindergarten even. So we wouldn't have to fight that if we actually fulfilled a, you know, we actually had a holistic view of what it means to be a Christian and really understood the, uh, the necessary parts of civic engagement as fundamental to our Christianity. Amen. It's not separate. It's not, we can't demarcate it. We can't, you know, kind of house it off and say, well, I guess I'm not going to engage in anything political. No. I think we missed the point when we do that. And God is... His heart is breaking when he looks at California and he looks at all these people of faith that makes up California. And yet California is in the state it's in. So um, before I get started, I'd just like you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to pray that the Lord bless this this man, because (laughs) if I start to talk without his blessing, boy, I tell you, we can go all over the place and I won't. None of it will make sense to you. So (laughs) father, in Jesus name, we're so grateful and thankful for this day. Uh, We just thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you for giving us uh, the privilege to come together and to fellowship, Lord, as as part of your body. We just ask that you would reign and dwell uh, here amongst us. We ask, Father God, that you, by your spirit, will anoint this this body, this vessel, to be able to speak your words, your truth, your principles, and everything that you want to communicate to your people. Uh, Be it unto us in accordance with your will and your way. Let your word come forth unfettered and let the people receive words as if they're receiving it directly from you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lift the veil 
that you will, since you're the great teacher and you teach all things, Holy Spirit, lift the veil and teach us everything that the Father wants to convey. And we just uh, thank you and we praise you for dwelling here in and amongst us. And we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, uh, so we, we have some interesting times in California. I mean, we, you know, we, we've just got really, really interesting times. The good news is, is uh, I'm sensing that there's a real, you know, there's an urgency in the spirit realm and that there's really a change coming. And that potentially, and it could start here, potentially there is a great awakening that could happen that could really change culture and society that will help us to withstall sort of the, the tactics of the uh, enemy forces and that would allow us as people of faith to really uh, be the light and salt uh, of this United States. One pastor said, the condition of America is a report card of the church. Now, if we take that literally, uh, which I do, uh, because we have so many you know, people that profess to be people of faith in America, um, how are we doing if that's the case? I mean, we're not doing too well. And why is that? That's the point of the talk. That's what we want to talk. We just have some discussions about that today. Um, I, I would like for us to begin to see and to sense what's happening especially here in California. So the bad news is, is we could see the assault of, on our families. We could see the assault on our faith. We could see the assault on our constitution. We could see what's happening around us, and that's greatly impacting our culture and society and really setting up the next generation for uh, utter chaos and decay. But I'm sensing that God is going to do something new and different. And not just me, there was a prophetic word in the, uh, that was, that was uh, just published in Charisma magazine on Friday. And it's from a, a lady who's a prophetess uh, who actually felt that God had given her these words to write to Charisma, and, and this is her prophecy. She says, uh, God is about to move Christians into the political arena. So God is getting ready to move Christians into the political arena. I woke up the other morning and government was in my spirit. God wants to shift the government, and he is calling Christians to do so. I feel a stirring in the spirit realm. God is positioning his people for great spheres of influence in the political realm. He's calling Christians to take up offices and seats in government. I heard him clearly saying people, pastors, apostles, leaders are going to be giving up their pulpits for politics. He continued to reveal to me that there would be well-known Christian conference speakers who would surrender their platforms to institute change in the government. He has prepared Christian speakers and ministers for such a time as this. People are going to start uh, getting a stirring and nudging to go into politics. God is going to use these very leaders who thought they, could, they would take a behind-the-seat approach to government and have them become visible and viable in positions of influence. So that's just one lady's uh, you know, prophetic words and vision. And I happen to believe that. You, you know, if you think about how, um, how we're now brought to this point, I mean, this is really a flashpoint for our faith, especially here in California. So, um, but, and so we have to begin to look at 
why have our legislators become so brazen? Uh, why have they become feeling like arrogant and uh, dismissive of people of faith? And what, what's really ha- what, what caused them to do that? Well, there's some there's some things that we as people of faith didn't really take advantage of. Remember Prop 8 a few years ago, uh, the marriage amendment. And we really culminated. We got, you know, the Mormons, the Christians, the Catholics. We all got together and man, we we and we we fought it. And we did a good job. And it went to the courts and it was overturned. And um, but that was really, uh, you know, a great culminating point for people of faith, especially here in California. And if we had leveraged our momentum of that point, I think we'd be at a different point right now. But we kind of let it, you know, go. And then we went back to our same voting habits. And... Um, and, and uh, so when we went back to our same voting habits, we actually empowered people that actually hate us and continue to do things against the church. So we empowered people in San Francisco, who's now running for governor. He just keeps going up and up and up. And it's because people of faith don't connect the dots, perhaps, between what we did with Prop 8 how we appointed judges who are undermining our faith because we have a tendency to pull the lever for tradition, you know, grandmom and them, mom and them, everybody and them did this particular voting pattern. And we just say, oh, well, pull for that. And uh, so we, we, we failed to connect the dots. And so we have, you know, somebody running for governor who is antagonistic to our faith. And yet, well, some of us may even still vote for him. Uh, we have people who are uh, who's a senator and who may be running for president. Actually, she's preparing to run for president. She was antagonistic to our faith, our faith in our face while she was in San Francisco and then in Sacramento. And yet people are still, hey, oh, yeah, whoa, she runs. That's, I'm thinking what these people completely undermine people of faith. And yet because they're of a particular persuasion, some of us are seduced to oh, pull for them. So you, you see, there's a, there's, there's a disconnect. Well, and it's really kind of interesting. And everybody has to go through this. And the Lord himself has to lift the veil for all of us. But here's what happens. We become Christians. And we do, you know, our life radically changes. We love the Lord. And, and, and so we, we present ourselves to our family. And they begin to see, hey, there's something different about dad. He's acting different. Yeah, I, I can see he must have really, this, this Christian thing is really working on him. We present ourselves to our jobs and people in our work. Oh, man, I see something different with Kevin this week. I, what's happening with you, bro? What's going on? Oh, well, you know, I accepted the Lord and I'm, I'm on fire and I got a different different outlook, you know. And, and so people in our jobs say people in our communities, they say, oh, man, you, you're different. You're, you know, you and your family, you're, every, you know, couple times a week, you guys getting together. You're going out. You're going, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to church. And, oh, wow, that's fantastic. One area that we completely neglect is the area that has us to go behind a curtain and pull a lever. See, we we actually think that the conversion process is just those things, or just for those things that are sort of in our community and in our sphere. But God's holding us accountable for a holistic gospel. It doesn't stop. 
It's not demarcated and nicely squared away with this community, that community, and that community. And then, you know, this is, this is mine. I'm continue to vote however I want. Uh, excuse me? If we understand what lordship is, it actually precludes us from that. Actually, if we understand what lordship is, we shouldn't have any feelings about voting any particular way. We look at the word of God. We weigh the two platforms or the candidates. We see which one lines up with the word of God. We say, Father, which one? Oh, the one that lines up most with you? Okay, good. That's what it is. Boom. Pull in the lever. There's no thought about it. I don't have to feel any particular way. When we had people that were in office for the past eight years, my family would say, oh, I know you're going to vote for... Uh, it's like, no, man. I'm not voting for that brother. No. This brother ain't voting for that brother. Kev, what, what, what you mean? Why you not? Uh, I say, because the vote is not my vote. I have to vote in alignment with the word of God. This is lordship, bro. And if he, if it's his vote, I got to pull the lever. What did what he say? And it doesn't matter whether I really, really want this person or I want this gender. This gender should be more representative uh, this will be the first time that we can have a female. In God's eyes, if they don't line up, you can't vote. Because it's not supposed to be a personal thing. We're not supposed to be voting. Uh, do you understand? We're not voting. It's his vote. So, so if we just vote in accordance to his will, California would look completely different. And it will look completely different. Because I pray that right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that veils are being lifted, that the eyes of your heart are being enlightened, and that you're saying, you know what? I did kind of neglect that area. I've been just doing what I do on that. I didn't think anything of it. Or I haven't voted at all because it's actually statistics tell us. Statistics tell us that of people of faith, this is how dreadful it is with us. Of people of faith, only 50% of us are registered to vote. So let's see. So this, this side of the room is registered to vote. This side is not. That's what statistics tell us. And of those that are registered on any particular given election, only 50% of them vote. So that means the Christian faith is being represented by this area right here. That's the reality. And a lot of it has to do with you know, we've got misconceptions. We've got this whole idea that the gospel is not holistic, that I can do whatever I want in these areas, or God doesn't care about power. You go, you. And so I tell, this, I tell people this all the time. So the Lord had me write a book about the kingdom uh, 13 years ago. And um, so he, he took me in a deep dive understanding about the, him and his kingdom. And, uh, and so when I tell people all the time, pastors, bishops, double doctors, I don't care what they are. I say, doc, uh, listen, um, you say God's not concerned about politics and, uh, he's not involved in government, but, uh, what is a kingdom? It's a government. I said, well, that sounds like God actually created government. <laughs> How could you say that God, he created government. He, he created a kingdom before anything ever existed. He had a government, his kingdom. That's a fact. And I said, well, they say, well, you know, he's not concerned about politics. I said, well, that's interesting because we actually had a third of the angelic hosts 
that decided to go and align with Lucifer and rebel against the king of the kingdom. I said, now, how did Lucifer get a third? He must have been politicking in the background. Hey, look. I want my own kingdom and uh, y'all going to come with me and we can, you know, we can get our own kingdom. We can be, you know, and do our own thing. We don't have to, you know. And, and so that's, that's politicking. It's not, it's, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So all of these fallacies, all of these fallacies have an impact on how we view government politics. We actually think that God's not concerned about it. And he's saying, if you want to impact the world, And if you want to go in all those areas where I've given you power and authority, you have to participate. And it's not optional. So the reason why we're in the condition that we're in is because we have misconceptions or we're just somewhat still not quite connecting with the reality of living out a holistic gospel. And I want to say, too, that while this may sound political, this is actually much deeper than that. Because if it's political, you can say, well, yeah, I heard a speaker, you know. It's all right, brother, you know. But he was a political speaker. And you couldn't dismiss it. But it's much more to this conversation than political. This is a spiritual com- conversation. God wants us to align holistically. That means every area of our life, every area is submitted to him and grant him authority, him authority as Lord to do whatever he wants in our life. That's our role. So that's a spiritual thing that we're talking about here. It's not political. Now, it may have political ramifications, but it's a spiritual thing. And if we were to do this, imagine what we can do in changing culture and society and changing California. And changing the context of what we're currently, of the battle that we're currently fighting. I, um, there was one scripture that the, the Lord brought me to that I think, I think sort of encapsulates it. And it's 2 Corinthians 11. If you turn with me there, we'll go through that real quick. And I'm going to be reading the uh, Good News trans- translation. Um, there's, but it's, that's just because... Uh, I like to flow with good news sometimes. I like to flow with the message sometimes, but this is a good news translation. We'll flow with this for a minute. So uh, I'll get into it. He says, uh, you know, this is what Paul's saying. He says, look, I wish you would tolerate me uh, even when I'm a bit foolish. Please do. Please just, just listen to me. He says, I'm jealous for you just as God is. You are like a pure virgin whom I promised marriage to one man only. Christ himself. I'm afraid that your minds will be corrupted and that you will abandon the full and pure devotion to Christ in the same way that Eve was deceived by the snake's clever lies. For you gladly tolerate anyone who comes to you and preaches even a different Jesus, not the one that we preached. And you accept a spirit and a gospel completely different than the spirit and gospel that you received from us. So what this is, this is Paul. He, he, he planted the church of Corinth and Timothy and Titus was giving them updates. And they came to him and say, look, that church of Corinth is kind of jacked up right now, man. What's, 
And he said, well, what's going on? He said, well, you know, we got these people. They're not even believing the way that we taught. They, they're not really accepting the gospel as a gospel, as a holistic gospel. They're kind of living differently. And, and he says, well, what happened? He said, well, I think that we had some people that came in to the church that said, look, I'm a follower just like you. Hey, we all, we Christians together. I'm a follower of Christ. This is all good. And, 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 but then that person then says, but, you know, it doesn't take all that to be a Christian. Yeah, you know, you don't have to, you know, what Paul and him, that's a little bit too, you know, you don't have to do all that. And so Paul wrote this letter. He says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned because we gave you the pure gospel. We gave you a holistic approach to the gospel, and yet you've allowed people to come in and deceive you. What have we allowed as people here in California? When you look back at all of the progressives that we have put in office, probably based on tradition, based on, uh, you know, uh, you know, just culture, cultural, you know, our family, this is part of our tradition. This is what we do. It's the exact same thing. We've actually elevated a mindset, a progressive mindset to a religion unto itself. And I can show you how. A lot of us, when we think about progressivism, leftism even, uh, we can't leave it. We hold on to that like it's for dear life. Like it's Christ himself we're holding on to. I, I, I minister to, I talk to a lot of pastors about this stuff. And they just flat out good, well, you know, been walking with the Lord for decades. And he's flat out saying, well, man, I just, you know, racism and xenophobism and feminism and all that stuff that you guys on that, you know, you just, and I say, well, but what about the alignment with the word of God? Ah, no, I, you know, I'm just staying on the progressive side. We got churches that are actually named progressive Baptist church, progressive this and that. And when you look at the gospel, it doesn't change yesterday, today, or forever. There's nothing progressive about it. We don't have a progressive gospel. We have a gospel that is, is what it is. But this was happening with the church of Corinth, and it's happening today. We have people that come to us and say, look, I'm, I'm a Jesus follower too, but I'm a you know, progressive left- leftist. And it's cool because that other side is hateful. And so, you know, just vote for me and everything's great. Well, let's look at the history of progressivism on America. If we recall, we actually had a constitution and declaration. Dr. Federer is going to be giving us an overview of that here shortly. And what is a progressive other than they act in extra constitutional ways? In other words, they say that I'm going to, you know, I'm taking an oath of office and I swear to uphold it and all that. But in the back of their mind, they say, but these people know I'm progressive. They can't hold me to any of this stuff. I can change it whenever I want. I could make a unilateral change. And so I'm a progressive. There is no accountability with a progressive. It's impossible. Let me just say it this way. It is impossible to hold a progressive accountable. Because they always say, look, progressive. Talking about. I know that's the word of the Constitution, but look, it changes. Society's changing. Culture's changing. We have to accommodate all these other groups. And so I'm a progressive, and that's the way it is. And so, uh, so that's what was Paul was doing. Now, if you look at American history, we started with slavery. Now, how did you have slavery occur when you actually had a constitution and declaration that says, that, hey, all men are created equal? 
All men are given God-given rights. You had progressive judges at the very beginning of our founding that upheld that, well, you know, blacks, they can be enslaved. Well, they're not really human. They just wrote it up, and there you go. So you had Jim Crow and Dred Scott and segregation. You had all of those laws that were passed in every area of our branches, in all three branches, executive, legislative, judicial, because we had progressives. Then we had progressives when it came to uh, issues of um, when it came to issues of uh, like Kiramatsu decision, the you know taking actual uh, you know Japanese and interning them, Japanese citizens interning them, taking their property. Uh, there was a progressive judge that did that. Then we have the you know the Civil Rights Acts and the Women's Rights Acts. There were progressive judges that actually withheld those rights for all that time. Then we had Roe v. Wade. That was progressive judges who decided that. Life is not life, and you can actually end it for uh, infants in the, in, the, uh, in the stomach and in the, in the womb. Then we had the Great Society, a New Deal. We had progressive uh, presidents. And then, in our more current history, we've had Prop 8. That was overturned by a progressive judge. Then we had religious liberties that we're currently fighting right now. We had parental rights that are trying to be withheld for, from us in the sense that they're not going to tell us when they want to indoctrinate our kids about what sex is and how to do it in graphic detail. And they with, you can't opt out. can't opt out, parents. We're going to teach them, you can't opt out. This is all progressivism. This is all laid at the foot of progressives, and they hate Christians. And yet, a lot of us, We'll go to the ballot box, not thinking of our gospel that we pledged our life to, not thinking of the lordship that we have with our father, but as an individual. This is my vote. I'm going to vote however I want to, period. I had a pastor told me, black pastor, Obama was in office, and uh, he said, look, I, I said, well, you know, I said, let's reason together. Let's take a look at the word of God. You tell me how... And he says, well, look, Kev, he said, uh, I understand where you're going with this. He says, but I vote race. And I said, oh, but, you know, we have a gospel that we pledge our life. Can we, can we look at that and you just tell me where? He said, uh, 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 uh. I vote race, period. In other words, what he's telling me is, look, I don't care about the word of God. When it comes to this, this is mine, baby. I'm running this ship. And I vote race, period. I don't care what God says. I don't care what his word says. I'm going this way and I'm pulling the lever. We have a lot of people, some of us in here, and I'm praying that by the spirit, the veil be lifted, that you see the detriment of this act, these types of actions. It's costing us. The entire body is under assault because of this. And if we just do something different, we can, we can spark a revival and a great awakening that you can't even imagine. And it happens here. Do you, you follow? You understand? All right. All right. So let me get up. Uh, let's see. A couple more things I just want to tell you. Um, I, you know, I, I'd like you to just take a uh, journey with me on a vision. Um, and, and basically, it just uh, I'm going to ask that we close our eyes, and I'm going to narrate what's happening in the spirit realm with voters and non-voters. First, let me, let me preface it with this. 
Uh, oh, I already gave you the stats. About 75% of us don't vote. We're off, you know. And so this narration, uh, with our eyes closed here in a second, I'm gonna, you're going to see how that, how that looks. So uh, can you close your eyes with me? All right, so imagine in your mind's eye that there are, there's a raging battlefield, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and put it, demarcate in the middle, half and half, equal, equal. And on one side, you have a raging horde of demons that are spewing all kinds of vile insults and this and that, and they're coming very, very aggressively at this other side. The other side, they're just standing there. They're standing there because they're people of God. And then they just hold up their Bible. And when they hold that up, the demons stop and they actually shriek back. And so, you know, we've got one side that, you know, we hold the Bible up and it brings, a, you know, a peace on the battleground and the demons actually shrink back. But then at one point, though, the people on the righteous side actually sit down. And they sit down with the Bible in their lap, but they're sitting there. Uh, let's say about 75% of them. They sit there. So the, the demonic realm, Satan himself comes down. He says, look, oh, man, these, uh, these people aren't even. He, oh, here, uh, you, Beelzebub, and you, uh, gather up these people. Take them to the side. Make them very, very comfortable. Make them very, very comfortable. You know, tell them, hey, you're doing the right thing. You know, uh, uh, Christians have no, you know, po- you know, politics and Christianity don't mix. Put them all on the side. Give them all those stories about how they're doing the right, pious thing and how they're how they're above the fray and turn their backs to the battlefield. So they don't see what the battle is actually like. So 75 percent have taken off the battlefield. All of that space that that 75 percent was occupied, the demonic realm charges forward. They take it all back up. You got, you got 25% of those people now that are still holding up their Bibles, but they have limited space. Now, of the 25%, about 10% of those realize, well, I, you know, I, I don't think I want to fight on this side anymore. I think, you know, some of us are, you know, racist, xenophobic, whatever. I want to go on the other side and be on the progressive side. So they, they actually join the horde. So we got 15%. And God begins to call out people. He calls Rob McCoy. He calls Professor Federer, he calls Kevin McGarry, he calls 150 pastors. He says, look, I want you to go to that sideline and I want you to turn those people around so they could see the battle. After they see the battle, I'm going to lift the veil in their eyes and they're going to take their place on that battlefield and they're going to start to raise their Bibles again. Those 75%, they turn around, we show them the battle, and then they rush to the battlefield. And they have their Bibles raised, and it, it really sends the enemy who works back. We reclaim all that, lame, all that, all that uh, geography back. And, uh, and that's the spiritual battle. We can open our eyes now. Hopefully, that you, you see that vision? That you sense it. That literally is this spiritual battle that we're in. Have you seen the faces of people that are fighting against us? Literally, you can almost see demonic manifestations on their face. Have you seen people from Antifa? I mean, even though they close up, you know, they try to have the hat partial face. You look in their eye. These, these, we're fighting demons, folks. This is, not, this is not for, you know, 
We're not playing, you know, pansy stuff here. This is, this is serious business. But if we just get on the battlefield, and if we just raise our standard, say, God, I'm going to vote God's way. I don't care, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Male, female, black, white, that's foolishness. I'm not going to enter into those conversations. The only conversation I'm going to have at, uh, at uh, the, the voting time is, Father, who are you voting for this time? Oh, okay. That well, okay. I don't even have an interest. I don't have a personal buy-in on it. It's his vote. That's what lordship is. And so all we're saying is, look, if the Lord is the Lord of your life in all these other areas, can he be the Lord of your life in the area of politics? That's the goal. Here's a quick litmus test for people that we should be voting for this time. Uh, governors and whoever. Here's, here's the deal. Are you a progressive? If you're a progressive, zzz, done. It's <laughs> number two, are you with us on 2943? Where, where do you stand, uh, Gavin? Where do you stand, Alan? Where, where do you guys stand on 2943? Is the, do we actually still have religious freedoms here in California or, or not? Listen to them. See what they say about that. Where are you with parental rights? Do the parents have the right to opt out our children from being overly sexualized at very, very young ages, as early as kindergarten? Where are you on those issues? That's our litmus test, folks. And depending on where they say where they fit on that, we have a clear dictate, I'd say mandate, that we just vote biblically. We can solve this. This is the time and the season that we're going to rise and that God, again, will get the glory. There will be a great awakening. And all we have to do is do our part. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Wait. Hey, look at that. Second service is really sweet. They're actually clapping for me. Yeah, okay, yeah. Before our next speaker, I, uh, I, we, you had clarified something to me, and I was blown away by it. And, and uh, I know we contend for life, um, especially in the womb, the unborn. It doesn't seem to be a banner that the church wants to hold nowadays. They want to avoid it. As we've gone through Isaiah, we right. saw Molech, all those things. Kevin and his wife, Tracy, represent um, a minority that, that is 13% of America. Right. Is that correct? That's right. So black Americans are 13% of America. But of the abortions in America, all abortions, 36% of all abortions in America are on black children. Now, you, you see that 13% number, and I always thought that was, that was tragic. It gets worse. Break it down. So the 13% is the total number of blacks in America. Now, if you break that number in half, approximately 50-50, female, male, males can't have you know, kids, so the actual number with females... I'm not pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> you can declare. Uh, you know. <laughs> no. The, uh, the, the other 50% is... Uh, so if you break that in half, it's 6... It's, it's uh, 6%. 7 and a half. No, 13, 13%, 6 and a half. 6 and a half. That's what I meant. 6 and a half, yeah. <laughs> and then... Uh, but childbearing age is 15 to 44. So that's another 50% of that number. So about 3% of the population the effective demographic. And here is the tragedy. Planned Parenthood and abortionists have specifically targeted areas where there's a high concentration 
of black and brown communities. It was hatched with the founder. I'm not going to, you, you know about that. Margaret already. Sanger, you just. Yeah, you know about that. But, uh, and, and so you got a 3% effective demographic being impacted with 40% of the abortions in America. So it's, it's a real tragedy. The church has to stand up to that. Yeah. You got that? No. All right, amen. Bless All you. right, thank you. Thank that you. That's awesome. That right. Our next speaker you've heard from before, um, and, and he's getting ready to head up to uh, Sacramento along with Kevin to minister to these over 150 pastors. Um, but the, one of the things you don't know about Bill Federer is that, um, and why I am so drawn to him as a friend and a brother, is uh, he ran for office against Dick Gephardt, who was going to be the Nancy Pelosi of the House. Um, he was a seated congressman that no one was going to beat in the, in, in the state of Missouri, uh, Bill ran against him and lost by less than one percentage point. And they spent, it was the third most expensive congressional race uh, in the history of the country at the time. And, and not because of the money he had to spend, it's because of the amount of money everyone else spent against him. He almost pulled it off. He was sued, uh, but with frivolous lawsuits, um, came through, and I've never heard him say a bad thing about anyone. He's, he's a man without guile. And, and what's fascinating is in the 3rd Congressional District, he received more Republican votes than any other candidate in the history of the state of Missouri. This guy has been in the trenches, and what he's sharing with you is a passion. This is, this is such an amazing man, just like you heard from Kevin. Both of these guys are fantastic, and we're so privileged to have him. Would you welcome my dear brother and friend, Bill Federer. Well, thank you, Pastor Rob, and I want you to know, God speak, Calvary Chapel family, how much I respect your pastor, Rob McCoy, and his wife, Michelle, and join with me in thanking the Lord for such tremendous pastors right here. And thank you, Kevin and Tracy, for your work with the Dred Scott, I'm sorry, the Frederick Douglass Foundation, and uh, you're doing a great work. I mentioned to him ahead of time that I'm an advisor with the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation with uh, Lynn Jackson, who's the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott. And so God is moving amongst the country, but Frederick Douglass, you, you need to get on his website and learn about him because uh, he was a tremendous godly man, and thank you, Kevin, for carrying on that tradition. Well, with that said, um, uh, last five years, um, David and Cindy Lane have asked me to join with a group uh, addressing pastors all around the country. And so I've given probably hundreds of talks and put it onto a DVD and a book. And so uh, I'm going to share just a little bit of that with you right now. And one of it is putting it into perspective. So historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Uh, said, history is to the nation as memory is to the individual. Have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. Guess what? We have national Alzheimer's. Here we are as a nation. We forgot our corporate memory. And so part of today is I want us to help get our memory back and realize how totally unique America is in world history. So did you know writing was invented around 3300 B.C.? Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Today that's Iraq, right? Take a stick, poke it in clay. That was the beginning of writing. Uh, and uh, here is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, his Cosmos TV series. He says, it was here around 5,000 years ago between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that we learned how to write. 
And so Egyptian hieroglyphics were invented around 3000 BC, and Chinese characters were invented around 2600 BC. The yellow emperor on bamboo annal books, because the strips of bamboo would go up and down, that's why they started writing it vertically. And, um, and then India, their Indus Valley civilization uh, was around 2600 BC. So you round it out, three or 4,000 B.C., and we're around 2,080. That's around five or 6,000 years of records. Five or 6,000 years of human beings writing down human records. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. So he uses the number 5,000. Richard Overy wrote the Times Complete History of the World. No date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago in the beginning of a written or pictorial history. Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State, said, Miracles do not cluster. What has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. Again, he uses the number 6,000, and something unique happened here. And a signer of the Constitution was uh, James Wilson and he was put on the Supreme Court by George Washington, he said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. Again, the number 6,000 and something unique happened here. 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. We've all met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it anyway, maybe a grandmother, right? We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human civilization. It's not that long ago. But now that we've established that we have 6,000 years worth of records, what do the records show? They show there's a 6,000-year quest to rule the world. And so one of the first stories in these records is what? It's Nimrod Tower of Babel. And uh, the Jewish commentator Josephus said Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So the Tower of Babel sort of had this defiant, in-your-face attitude toward God. And, of course, God comes down and confuses the languages, and what happens? The people scatter. So we see this first illustration of power concentrated, defiant against God, and power separated into the hands of the people. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel only on a bigger scale because of the increase of technology can kill more people. And so um, uh, have you ever seen the movie The The Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger? There's this killer metal robot from the future is chasing after him. They blow the thing to pieces, and you're sighing relief, but then the little pieces melt into little silvery balls, and then they roll together sort of magnetically into into silvery pools, and, and then out of this silver pool comes the hand of the Terminator. It crawls out, and then the thing starts chasing him again. It's like, how do you get rid of this thing? It's like God separated power, the Tower of Babel, but every generation since has wanted to re-concentrate power. So have you ever seen this um, Nautilus seashell that goes a little circle, a little bigger circle, a little bigger, bigger circle? That's actually a geometric ratio of expansion called phi, P-H-I, or the golden ratio, or the Fibonacci sequence. Um, But it's observable in nature, the way that water spins and goes down a drain, or a tornado, or a hurricane, or a galaxy, right? It's this rate of expansion. Well, I decided to apply it chronologically to the world empires, and it followed the same pattern. So sure enough, you have Nimrod Tower of Babel, and um, then you have uh, around 2500 B.C., Gilgamesh, king of Uruk. And he's the first one to build a wall around the city. That was his new big invention. 
And then around 2250 BC, you have Sargon of Akkadia conquers a bunch of walled cities from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. And then there's 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs and 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. And then Assyria was the biggest empire, um, and it was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and it had the biggest empire, which was conquered by uh, uh, Cyrus of Persia and Darius, and they had the biggest empire until it was conquered by Alexander the Great around 300 BC. He had the biggest empire. He was stopped in India, and there was Chandra Gupta in India, and he had the biggest empire, a quarter of the world's population right there in India. And then uh, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, had the biggest empire, right, around 2500 or 25 BC. And then Attila the Hun had the biggest empire in the 4th uh, 450s. And uh, he had a half a million soldiers wiping out cities across Europe. Uh, and then uh, the Byzantine Empire, right? Uh, and then the Muslims in the 7th and 8th century had the biggest empire. They conquered from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean. They had Spain. Uh, and then the Muslims were stopped by going into Europe by Charles Martel. And his grandson is Charlemagne. And he has this big empire in Europe. And then there's Genghis Khan in the 1200s. He conquers from Korea to Hungary, kills 30 million people. And he had the largest contiguous, that means land-connected empire. His grandson's Kublai Khan, who runs China. And then there's Tamerlane, kills another 17 million across Central Asia, wipes out Christianity there. Ivan the Terrible of Russia. And then you cross the ocean to uh, America. And you got Montezuma and the Aztec Empire and Atahualpa in the Incan Peruvian Empire. And then you have 1500s King of Spain, Charles V. He had the largest empire the planet had seen. And um, son never set on the Spanish Empire. All the, the Philippines were named after his son, King Philip of Spain. And then there's the King of France, and he had this global empire. And then the King of England had the largest empire that planet Earth had ever seen. Right, 13 million square miles, a half a billion people. All of India, a quarter of the world's population right there. Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British, Guyana, Canada, and America. And America's founders decided we didn't like this globalist king telling us what to do. And we wanted to get away from him. And so, now, power wants to concentrate. And it's like a pull of a magnet, like the law of gravity. Power wants to concentrate. And uh, the movie The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf tells Frodo... Always remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. And I think it goes back to the fall in the garden and selfishness coming into the human DNA and Cain killing Abel and one king taking a kingdom from another king. And so uh, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. Original sin, right? Fallen nature. And so you put some... Cute little babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. You put some junior high girls in a clique, and one of them is the diva. You put some natives in the woods, one of them is the Indian chief, and you put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. (laughs) And it's a hierarchical system. So if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you are an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason or you're a slave. And so it's this pyramid structure to society that keeps repeating itself all around the globe because it's in each of our selfish human DNA, right? And you think of it, maybe you think, well, someday if I were the king, I'd be really good. Okay, let's pretend like you're the king. Everything's going along fine. 
And then you have a sister with a teenage son who drinks and drives and parties, and he's having a good time until he hits somebody with a car and kills him. Now he's facing manslaughter charges, mandatory prison sentences, and your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away half his life. It wasn't his fault. Those other kids talked him into it, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say to your sister? I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You just sent ripples through your kingdom that if you're family or friends with the king, you get special treatment. If you're not family or friends, you don't get the special treatment. And if you're wanting to unseat uh, the the, the dictator, he's going to want to shut you up. And so it just happens. When power concentrates, it gets favoritism. It gets corruption. And so... Uh, so as power constant, so this repeats itself. So now in reading through all these ancient civilizations, I found three things that kept appearing that I thought was interesting. Number one is people groups would transition from hunter-gatherers to agriculture, right? The Bible talks about Adam and Eve plucking the fruit off the tree, and then it says Cain was a tiller of the soil. And so when they transitioned to agriculture, they needed to know when to plant the crops. And so they needed to keep track of the seasons, which means they had to keep track of the stars to know when the seasons were about to change. And so they would build big, immovable structures to observe the stars. Stonehenge, pyramids, ziggurats, and so forth. And uh, then there was somebody that got to climb up the building and look at the stars and come down with the secret knowledge from heaven on when to plant the corn, right? When to plant the barley and the oats and everything. And so this turned into this person that got to climb up the building thinking he was a little extra special. He was carrying down this special knowledge from heaven. And before you know it, it turned into these kings that claimed to be divinely appointed. And so the Babylonian Assyrian kings were king priests. And the Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be the son of the god Osiris. And the Roman emperors claimed to be divine. August Caesar, word August means divine. Uh, the Chinese emperors ruled by claiming they had a mandate from heaven. Incan emperors claimed to be delegates of the sun god. The Muslim caliphs claimed to be successors of the messenger of Allah. The Raja, which is the word for king in India, they were a semi-divine caste of rulers. Japanese emperors claimed to be heavenly sovereigns. And uh, in Europe, they Christianized it and called it the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so whatever my will is must be God's will because he put me here. So I can pretty well do anything I want. If you're challenging me, you're challenging God, and so I can use God's power to kill you. <laughs> and, um, and then they had the French Revolution, and they deified the state. And they said the state is God walking on earth and so forth. So now if you're running the state, you're the equivalent of a god. And so this hierarchical system... Uh, of uh, the creator giving all the power to the king, and he's a little more equal than the rest of you. He's a little more special, and he dispenses the power to the people. So by the 1500s, 16th century, you have the king of Spain has a global empire. Uh, The Muslims have this huge empire. Uh, Catherine the uh, the Great of Russia, 12 time zones, all controlled by one person. And the French empire at its greatest extent. And here is the head of the French empire, Louis XIV, the sun king. He's called the Sun King because his subjects were planets that revolved around him every day. He says, I am the state. And he was talking to an administrator, and the administrator says, oh, uh, you, King, you can't do that. It's illegal. He says, it is legal because I wish it. Oh, well, that's easy. The law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a really powerful army to make you obey. 
And here's King James of England. And he says, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. And so these kings wanted to be the intermediary between you and heaven. And so we go through these 6,000 years. We see these empires get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until finally the king of England had this big global empire and America's founders decided they wanted to break away from this globalist king. And it took centuries before our founders had this unique opportunity to break away. And, uh, and so we got colonies in America, and there were king-run colonies, right? Company colonies, royal crown colonies, proprietary colonies, but the king's in charge of all of them. And uh, the pilgrims decide they're going to flee Holland. They were separatists, and they, went, they fled from England to Holland, and then they fled across the ocean to America. They got caught in storms. Their ships started leaking. They had to go back, try again, try again. And it ate up a lot of time. They finally get to America. And the storms were so much that it blew them 500 miles off course. And they landed Massachusetts. And you think, oh, no big deal. They'll just sail down the coast. Well, it just happens to be really stormy. And on the coast of Cape Cod is these shallow, sandy uh, shoals that go way far out. 3,000 ships have wrecked off the coast of Cape Cod. It's called a graveyard of ships. And the pilgrims almost sink. And so the captain of the Mayflower says, this is too dangerous. He goes back to Plymouth Rock and says, okay, everybody, off the boat. It's too dangerous to sail anymore. And the pilgrims uh, sort of raise their hand. They go, "Uh, we have a question. Who's going to be in charge of us? There's no king-appointed person on our boat. We were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government there. We hadn't planned on it. Who's going to be in charge of us? We can't just get off the boat with nothing. No. And they decided to do something unique. They gave themselves the authority to start a government. And it was a little polarity change in the womb of this Mayflower. In the, in the little hull of this ship is this change where they begin to have a bottom-up form of government. And so it says, we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic to enact just and equal laws, as shall be thought most meet or necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple revolutionary. This was them giving themselves the authority rather than trying to get some king to give them permission. It was the polarity change from a top-down form of government to a bottom-up. Right, like you turn an electric switch, and the electricity flows one direction, now it flows the other. And it's the difference between a dead pyramid that's a top-down or a living tree, where every root and every little capillary root is sucking in nutrients to help keep this tree alive. Every citizen participates in making this thing live. Can you see it? And so uh, it's the difference between the divine right of kings, top-down, and we the people, bottom-up. Now, where did the pilgrims get this idea that they could rule themselves without a king? Their pastor, John Robinson. He was not an Anglican king-appointed pastor. He was a little separatist pastor. He's considered one of the founders of the Congregationalist Church. Today, there's only half percent Congregationalist, but back then it had a great impact on our country. So, this painting of John Robinson and then Elder William Brewster with the Bible hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. So John Robinson uh, helps to formulate this idea of the congregation voting when they have big decisions. 
Now, it's just about 100 people. It's like a little small home church group. And uh, they got tough decisions. They all fast and pray and vote. Everybody in the All they did was take their church form of congregational government, and they made it their community form of government. This is 100 years before Europe's Age of Enlightenment. And um, so covenant, John Robinson said, the pilgrims are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord. So we hold ourselves tied to care for each other's good. So we're all a body. We're tied to each other. Now, this idea of a covenant comes from ancient Israel. And it's the people are in covenant with each other under God. They get their rights from God, and they're accountable to God. So God is an integral part of it. Now, the next century, in the early 1700s, they call it the Age of Enlightenment. And it's no longer called the covenant. It's called the social contract. And it's the people in contract with each other, with or without a God. If he's there, if he's not there, it's just, it's just what the people agree upon. Well, the next century, you have the French Revolution. And it's a social contract without God, specifically without God. During the French Revolution, they uh, didn't want done in the year of the Lord, like our Constitution. So they made 1792 the new year one. They actually changed it. It was the year one of the Republic. And year two, and year, it wasn't until later Napoleon scrapped it. But it was in effect for like, you know, 20-some-odd years. And then um, they, did, they turned churches into temples of reason. They destroyed statues of the saints. You know how to, you know, destroying statues of the past, right? um, uh, like St. Genevieve. I mean, here Attila the Hun with his army of a half a million people is scourging Europe, and she gets all of Paris to fast and pray, and Attila skips second Paris. So, so she's the patron saint of Paris. But during this French Revolution, they take the bones of St. Genevieve and trash them. And uh, they didn't want a seven-day week with a Sabbath rest because it went back to the Bible. And so they came up with a 10-day week called a decade week. Each day had 10 hours. Each hour had 100 minutes. Each minute had 100 seconds. Everything was, in France was divisible by 10. They, they said that was the number of man, 10 fingers and 10 toes. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. <laughs> anyway, so we see it goes from a covenant together under God to with or without God to specifically without God, and then the state becomes God. You get your rights from the state, the group, and you're accountable to the group. But anyway, back to the pilgrims. So the pilgrims are in this covenant with God, like ancient Israel. They come across, and they do a good job for 10 years. And the Puritans are back over in England, and they're trying to purify the Anglican church. So we got two groups. The Puritans are inside of the Anglican church trying to get a little revival going. The pilgrim separatists left the Anglican church, and they said, it's, it's hopeless. We're just going to separate ourselves. So we got the two different groups. So the pilgrims are over for 10 years. They do a good job. The Puritans come over. And the Puritans, there are 16,000 of them. And once they come across, they decide that they, there's so many of them, they are the government. And so they begin to institute Puritan religious uniformity. So now everybody has to be Puritan. And so you have, um, here's Justice Black in the Engels decision, said, when some of the very groups which had most strenuously opposed the established Church of England found themselves sufficiently in control of colonial governments, they passed laws making their own religion the official religion of the respective colonies. And so nonconforming pastors fled and founded new communities. And so a Reverend John Lothrop and his church founded Barnstable, Massachusetts. A Reverend Roger Williams and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island, and the first Baptist church in America. Uh, Reverend John Wheelwright and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire. And Reverend Thomas Hooker and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. So this is unique on planet Earth that's ruled by Chinese emperors, Muslim sultans, kings of Spain. And here you have in New England this greenhouse experiment of pastors and their churches founding communities. 
And so uh, the uh, people with John Hooker flee, and they found Hartford, Connecticut. And um, the congregation members go to their pastor and say, Pastor, it's great that we're here, but how do we do the government thing? And so he gives a sermon in 1638 titled, The Foundation of Authority is Laid Firstly in the Free Consent of the People. And again, this is revolutionary because the foundation of authority over in Europe, it's the creator giving the power to the king and him dispensing it to the people. And so uh, this idea of the foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people, this influenced our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And in his sermon, he says, the privilege of election belongs to the people. According to the blessed will and law of God, this influenced our constitution where it's we the people. And in his sermon, he goes on, they who have the power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is in their power also to set the bounds and limitations of the power. And so his sermon is written down and it's called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. And it is the Constitution of Connecticut from 1639 up until 1818. They use Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon as their constitution. And it was considered the first written constitution in history that created a government, comes a, blu- a blueprint for other colonies. That's why Connecticut's called the Constitution State. And so here's a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Did you know that over there they think that this pastor that you've never heard of is the father of American democracy? Here's another plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. Here's another statue of Thomas Hooker holding a Bible that stands on the Capitol grounds in Hartford, Connecticut. At the base of the statue, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford. On this site, he preached the sermon, which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Here's another plaque in Hartford. they got lots of plaques there. It says, uh, Thomas Hooker preached his famous sermon. The foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And then they go ahead on this site, they pass the fundamental orders of Connecticut. The fundamental orders say, where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires that to maintain peace, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God. The people conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth to preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now that top part, the people conjoin ourselves, that sounds like the Mayflower. We covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic. Here's another plaque in Hartford. It says, Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present Constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you see this here? The pastor's sermon formed this congregational form of church government, and that became the form of the community's government. And here's a plaque that says it became the model for our U.S. Constitution. Well, I thought they got all their ideas from the Age of Enlightenment. This is like 50 years before the Age of Enlightenment. And now, this is interesting. So these pastors are studying the Bible. So we got the Reformation, 1517. Then we got a century. Then we got the Age of Enlightenment. What, what were they studying during this century? They were stu- studying the first 400 years when Israel came out of Egypt. It's called the Hebrew Republic. And this is before they get King Saul. And so they're studying the Scriptures. And so here's one of the things they saw. Uh, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower. That word church is a Greek word, ecclesia. Everybody say ecclesia. ecclesia. And then here's another scripture, Matthew. Uh, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Everybody say ecclesia. ecclesia. 
And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, ecclesia, ecclesia, um, let him be as a Gentile collector. Now, that word ecclesia is a Greek word that everybody knew the meaning of back then. And it was a called out assembly, a congregation, like congregational church. And it meant a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. An assembly of the people convened at the public place of the council for the purpose of deliberating uh, the assembly of the ancient Israelites. And now King James I, when he was translating the King James Bible, insisted that the translators translate the word ecclesia as church rather than as assembly or congregation. Why? Because he wanted to be the head of the church. And how can you be the head of something that's a bottom-up thing when it's the congregation, when it's assembly, right? So this was a big deal. This was the polarity change. He wanted to maintain the top-down polarity. And Now, before the King James Bible was the Geneva Bible. It's the one that Shakespeare quoted from. It's the one that the pilgrims brought to America. The Geneva Bible had all these side notes in the margin talking about assembly and congregation and ecclesia and so forth. And King James did not like all those little side notes. And so he says, I want a new Bible that doesn't have those now. To his credit, he got a bunch of Puritans together and Presbyterians and Anglicans, and they they translated it for a long time, and they finally came come up with something that they could all agree upon. But he still put his foot down when it came to the word ecclesia. Now, how does this happen? Um, you get somebody that becomes a Christian. A year later, somebody else becomes a Christian. The new guy has a question, and he goes to the older Christian and says, what should I do? And um, the older Christian says, uh, let's go to the Bible and study it. And they study in the Bible, and let's look at a whole bunch of scriptures, and then let's go ask some other friends because no verses of any private interpretation. And they study it and study it, but ultimately says, look, you are accountable to God for your conscience. It's up to you to make the final decision. And this guy says, oh, great, i got to pray, i got to seek the Lord, i got to really fast, i got, you know, and then finally, you know, they learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit, and they learn how to, to back it up with two or more scriptures, you know, and so forth, and then they make their decision, because they're accountable to God for it. You know, but there's an easier way. So somebody becomes a Christian, a year later, somebody else becomes a Christian, the new guy has a question. He could go to the old guy and say, what should I do? The guy says, that's easy, you just do this. And then, what should I do about this other thing? Oh, that's easy. Just do that. What should I do here? That this, that, this, that, this. Till pretty soon, this guy becomes the spiritual intermediary between this new Christian and God. And this guy gets prideful because he's the, the spiritual guy. And this guy gets lazy. Why should I have to go through all this problem of studying the Word? And everything? I'll just ask Joe. You multiply that by a thousand years. And you have the clergy and the laity. You have the clergy that they do all the ministry, and they're the ones that hear from God. They tell us what God tells us to do. And you got this lady that's lazy. Well, I'm just going to sit back. If it's important, he'll tell me. And so that is the difference between a top-down ecclesia, right, where the king's in charge or whatever the hierarchy is, and the people are lazy, and it's the difference between a bottom-up form of government where you have a whole bunch of people that they know how to study the Word, they know how to hear from God, and they're the ones that are the body. Did, did you understand that? Anyway, so in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it's the pastors and their churches that created the state. 
How could you tell this pastor, Pastor Thomas Hooker, don't get involved in politics, when it's his sermon that's their government? How could you tell the church members, don't get involved in politics, when all there was in Hartford were the church members? And so, um, anyway, how am I doing time-wise? Is it about time to wrap it up? Um, Let me just go through something really fast here. (laughs) Time's getting away. So, uh, the founders, um, they they wrote the Constitution, and they needed to have it ratified, and they... um, needed nine states. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth state to ratify our Constitution, but it was having a deadlock. So Harvard President Samuel Langdon gives an address, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. Instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union. See this application plainly. So after his address, they vote, they ratify it, and our U.S. Constitution goes into effect. So our U.S. Constitution went into effect after the sermon, the Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states. What was this Republic of the Israelites? Well, for 400 years, Israel did not have a king. It was not a top-down thing, right? Before they got King Saul, it was just the people, and they had the law, and the priests were teaching them the law. And so ancient Israel was a bottom-up form of government. It was um, a republic. And so Israel, since there was no king, there's no royal family to butter up next to. And the Bible specifically says there's no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is to be treated the same. This is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. Israel had tolerance. Even though they're worshiping the one true God, they never felt compelled to force anybody to worship him. Right? They didn't say, get your lamb and we're going to drag you to the altar. No. If you wanted to convert, you could, but they didn't force anybody. They, were, they realized that your worship to God is only a value if you voluntarily give it. Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. In wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. In Israel, the land was permanently titled to each family. If they got in a pinch and sold it, every 50 years, the land reverted back to that family. This prevented a dictator from gathering up all the land and putting the people back into slavery. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. You got capital, you got stuff, you worked hard and saved it, right? Um, Ancient Israel had no police. Everyone was taught the law. Everyone helped enforce the law. It was like everybody was deputized. We have a little of that today with traffic laws. Somebody's weaving in and out of the lanes, everybody else honks their horn at them. And uh, maybe a mom watching a bunch of neighborhood kids, she has no problem correcting somebody else's kid. In Israel, everybody corrected everybody else. It was a self-policing system. Israel had no standing army. You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia and armed and ready at a moment's notice to defend their family and their community. Israel had no prisons. In Egypt, Joseph was in prison for several years. In Israel, when a crime was committed, you got the elders of the city together and you had the trial right then. And then there's a city of refuge you could run away to to await a trial. Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. So uh, in Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a bag of grain. In Israel, when you harvested your field, you left the gleanings, the corners, for the poor people to pick through. Like Ruth, this way the poor were taken care of on a cellular level, without some big politician collecting everything and doling it back out to those who can help them stay in power. Israel had a system of honesty. God hates unjust weights and measures, and Israel got to choose their own leaders. 
So Moses spake unto the children of Israel, How can I alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, and, and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. This was an election process within the tribe. The people they knew, hey, Joe, you know, he hates covetousness, he's honest. And so it was decentralized. Anybody could be raised up into power. And so uh, here's Deborah from a nobody family, and uh, she becomes a leader in Israel, not because she's related to a king. It's just her. She knows the law. She's honest. Reputation spreads. She sits under a tree. People make her way all the way across the country to hear the cases. Where else in the world could a woman become a national leader who's not related to anybody important? And so Harvard President Samuel Langdon says, the Israelites may be considered as a pattern to the world in all ages of government on Republican principles. From abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Think of it. They go from 400 years of slavery. They can't even read. And they get downloaded this complete package system. And it works for 400 years. And so Israel was the first nation that could read. I thought this was interesting. Sumeria had 1,500 cuneiform characters, right? Take a stick, poke it in clay, and uh, 50. But it was only for court records. It's only for kings and scribes. Um, Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the scribes' secret knowledge. They kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. Uh, China had 10,000 characters, and it was just for court records, just for the, the emperor. And um, here's anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss. Ancient writing's main function was to facilitate the enslavement of other human beings. It was the communication of the deep state amongst themselves. And they wanted to keep the common people in the dark. We had a little of that in America prior to the Civil War. There were laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read. Frederick Douglass, the Republican advisor to Lincoln, writes about growing up on a plantation. And the slave master's sister-in-law was teaching him the alphabet. Her husband walks in and yells at her, says, don't you dare teach slaves to read. They'll grow discontent, run away. They can forge their documents. And uh, Frederick Douglass says, that was the first sermon that convinced me that I wanted to learn how to read. <laughs> so if you want to control a mass of people, you want them to be ignorant. Maybe go through some common core stuff where they learn behavior modification instead of academic excellence. So when Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in 22 characters. So easy to learn. Kids could learn how to read. No longer is reading and writing the secret knowledge of this deep state elite is everybody. The first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph, second letter Beth, sound familiar? And so the priests taught the people the law, they taught them how to read the law. So it was an educated populace. The people were the king, and it was an educated populace. And now, but the question is, okay, we've got a law that came from God, and everybody's equal, but why follow it? Hmm. So we've got a spectrum of power. One side's total government, the other side's no government. Total government, you get a king who rules through fear. You do what he says or he kills you. No government's anarchy, unless the people have internal morals. It's like everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone. Instead of a GPS telling you where to turn, it tells you how to act. Be nice to this person. Don't cuss at that person. You're right. And so, but, so like an Uber, every, you can have your own business with your own Uber. You don't need to be some part of some big corporation. So everybody has their own app, the same thing. It's the law of God, and the Levites help you to download it. But wait a second, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Right? If you have a selfish temptation, why wouldn't you? Give, what would make you not want to give in to the temptation? Ancient Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. 
So you're about to steal something, nobody's around, and then you think, oh, God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Mm, maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in the back of your head called the conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, God's watching, wants me to be fair, he's going to hold me accountable. Everybody is motivated to follow these internal morals, and you can maintain complete order with no police. Maximum liberty. Now, it only works with the God of the Bible. An Islamic Allah God says, hey, there's an infidel woman there. Nobody's around. You can rape her. It's okay. The God of the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So our system of government without a king is based on the people having internal morals. What motivates them to follow them is the God of the Bible. So in other words, the less external restraints we, we have, the more internal restraints we need. It's like a parent giving the teenager the car keys and says, look, you can come home whenever because you have internal morals. You're going to do what's right. But if you don't do what's right, and you drink and drive and party and have a good old time, you're going to be pulled over by the police and controlled behind bars. So, teenager, you are going to be controlled, either voluntarily from the inside or forcibly from the outside. It is the same way with the nation. We're either going to be voluntarily controlled with internal morals, we're accountable to God, or we're going to get rid of God, give in to our passions and lusts, and it's going to turn into chaos, and then we're going to say we need the government to come in and restore order, and they will by taking away all our rights. Democrat candidate for president, William Jennings Bryan, a religion which teaches personal responsibility, and I want to focus that word personal, to God, gives strength to morality. There is a powerful restraining influence in the belief that an all-seeing eye scrutinizes every thought and word and act of the individual. Reagan said, without God, there's no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. If there's no God, it's just a bunch of rules. Why follow them? Well, some will, some won't. And then those that get the power and the guns will force the other ones. And so if you get rid of this God, all you have is rules. And then some will follow them, some won't. Those that won't are going to give in to their passions. And they're going to rob and steal and lie. They're going to get very creative about it. They're going to be totally amoral, right? They're going to uh, smash windows and start fires in the street and ambush policemen and kill their classmates. And it's going to be so total chaos that they're going to say, we need the government to come in and restore order. The government will come in and they'll restore order. But they're going to do it by taking away all your weapons and take away all your freedoms. They're going to concentrate power and it's going to be back to a king. And we're going to no longer be a people ruled from the bottom up. We're going to be a people ruled by fear from the government from the top down. What happened to ancient Israel? It worked as long as the priest taught it. The problem is every one of us is born with a sinful nature. Imagine if every computer you buy is preloaded with a virus. <laughs> and you have to immediately take the computer over to the geek squad desk and say, I just bought this. Can you, can you clean the virus off? Every kid is born preloaded with the virus of selfishness. And the Hebrews would take the kid to the Levite priest and say, recode this kid. The priest would set the kid down and say, okay, kid, you want to steal? Don't steal. You want to lie? Don't lie. You want to commit adultery? Don't commit adultery. God's watching. You're going to hold you accountable. As long as the priest taught it and, and, and re, you know, encoded every new generation, it worked. When the priest stopped teaching the law, it fell apart. So the high priest is Eli, the main guy supposed to be teaching. His own sons are sleeping with women in the tent of meeting with the Lord. And then another Levite with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. You read the story in Judges, and you're like, what's this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the commandments? You're not supposed to have them. He's not following the law. And then a terrible story of a Levite with a concubine. The law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman not even married to. And they're traveling, and they're in a house surrounded by sodomites that bang on the door. And he shoves the poor girl out. She gets raped and dies, and it's a terrible story. By the end of it, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Sort of sounds like today. And the problem, why did they all do what's right in their own eyes? 
because the priests had stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. They forgot God. They forgot the fear of God. They forgot God's laws, and it just turned into total chaos. And what happened next? They all go to Samuel the prophet, and they say, this system is not working anymore of us ruling ourselves. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they have not rejected thee, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God's perfect plan for Israel was to have the people all know the law, all have private property, all could read, all be educated, all you know, seek God, the priests busy teaching them the law, and everybody's accountable to God, and they have freedom. And uh, once they got rid of the freedom, rid of God, rid of the law, turns into raw human selfish chaos, and the rubber band snaps back, and they get King Saul. And it wasn't just King Saul. He turns around and kills most of the priests. So the the pastors today that are not bothering teaching people, what, what do they have to look forward to? Once you get an ungodly government, they're not just going to take, it's not going to be business as usual. They're going to come after you. And so um, anyway, so we go through these 6,000 years of history. As the years go on, the kingdoms get bigger and bigger and bigger. Clearly, there's a global goal in mind, and I think we have a reprieve from it being implemented. But our founders broke away from the most powerful king on the planet, the king of England, and um, they took the power of a king, and they separated it into three branches, separated at federal and state level, tied up this federal Frankenstein with 10 handcuffs. All the Constitution is, in a sense, is a bunch of hurdles to prevent the rubber band from snapping back into the hands of one person. They wanted to take power, separate it. In other words, they wanted to make it really slow to get stuff done. They realized that the most efficient form of government's a king. He says it, it happens, their heads roll. So they made our form of government inefficient on purpose. Slow to making good decisions, but thank God, slow to making irreversible bad decisions. They realized it could take a lifetime to build a mansion and one irresponsible match to burn the thing down in a day. So they wanted to make it really difficult to make irresponsible decisions. The last thing they could imagine was, we got to hurry up and pass this thing so we can find out what's in it. <laughs> anyway. And so, but um, anyway, uh, let me just close with this one thought. God is interested in a personal relationship with each person. He doesn't want an intermediary in between you and him. It's you, you've got his word, you get filled with the spirit, You've got a pastor that coaches you and walks you through the chapters of Corinthians and takes you through step by step. But the goal is you to be a mature Christian, all right, and have your own relationship with God. So God is jealous. The God of the creator of the universe is jealous for your thoughts. Those little wispy things that go through your head called thoughts, the God of the universe is jealous for your thoughts. Before the flood, it says... Um, it repented God that he made man, and the thoughts of man were on evil continually, and they chose not to retain God in their thoughts. I mean, could you imagine the Holy Spirit hovering over them for a thousand years? Some of those guys were living all those long ages, you know? And it's like they could, they could go day after day after day, not even bother thinking about him. The God, the creator of the universe, is jealous for your thoughts. But he's, more, he's jealous for a relationship. And, and God loves you. The problem with love is uh, he can't force you to love him back. Right? So, so we always say, oh, God loves us. Yeah, he loves you with a jealous love like a bride loves a groom. I don't know about you, but, but most grooms are jealous if their bride's spending more time with another man. And so God loves us with this jealous love, and he's jealous for our thoughts. But the thing about love is you can't force it. 
right? He creates the whole universe. He creates everything, and he programs it. So there's laws of nature, laws of physics. He programs a little apple seed to bring forth an apple tree. Programs a little puppy to act like a really cute little puppy. It's just doing what it's programmed to do, and it's really cute, and we love it. And God's like, okay, if, if, and if you think of it, I mean, he existed for eternity. He knows everything. And so it's like, you know, if anything were to show him affection, it would be because he programmed it to show him affection. But at one point, he says, you know, I would really like to be loved. I want to make somebody in my image that has the choice of whether or not to love me. In a sense, in a sense we're AI, <laughs> right? God decided to make us, and he gave us this choice. And the choice to love him, he had to also give us the choice not to love him in order for the choice to love him to be a choice. It's like he puts the tree in the garden and says, Adam and Eve, don't eat from it, but it's your choice. Because the children of Israel, the law, here's the blessings, here's the cursings, please choose life, but it's your choice. And you can harden your heart and say, no, I'm not. Or you can yield to his grace and you turn, right? So God is jealous over a personal relationship with you. And um, I finally way to explain it. I'll end with this little presentation of the gospel. So, Adam and Eve sinned and hid from God. Have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against. Let's say you're talking about somebody behind your back. You're joking about them. You're lying about them. You're making fun about them. And then that very person walks through the door, and they're walking in your direction. Question, are you drawn to want to go over to that person? Or like, oh, great, they're there. I was just talking about I think I'm going to slip out the back. Your own conscience does not want you to be around the person you sinned against. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. God's walking in the garden, wants to be around. They want to get away. It's like two magnets that are stuck together and one of them turns. The other one still wants to touch, but this one wants to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. It's once people sin against God, their own conscience won't let them come into his presence. The closer they get, the more they're aware of their sinfulness, and they're like, ah. It's like if you owe somebody money, right? And you owe them a lot of money, and there's no way you pay anything. Oh, there's Joe. I owe Joe a lot of money. You know, you sort of want to avoid them. So, Adam and Eve said, we, we blew it. We, we got to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God again. They put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves make Adam and Eve acceptable to God? No. And this little line, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. We read it really fast, but if you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? Kill an animal. You think God went to the other side of the garden and killed an animal? Or do you think he killed it right in front of them? And they witnessed the first death ever, right? Creation just happened. This is the first thing ever to die. And Adam and Eve are watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying. And they're thinking to themselves, we're the ones that sinned, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear the animal was dying in their place, that right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had some blood on it. They were covered in the blood. And so for the rest of their lives, they're wearing the skin of that animal that they watched die in their place. And whenever God sees them, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel, Cain decides he wants to worship God, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaf, and he starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. (laughs) It's a religion of works. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. 
So here's Cain sweating in the field, getting his wheat and his barley. He's working really hard. It takes a long time to grow stuff. And he piles all his works on the altar. Did Cain's works make him acceptable to God? No. Abel did the lamb thing, sacrificed the lamb. And so we see this picture. God's on one side. We're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God. The polarity is the wrong way. And the lamb pays for the sin. So Abraham offered lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of the house. The high priest brings the blood of the lamb, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. The blood changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. And finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God's on one side, we're on the other side. Our sins separate us from God, the Lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven... You are approaching God as Cain. I hope I piled enough stuff on the altar. Maybe a couple more handfuls of barley. That'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me. It's this lamb that was good enough to pay for all my sins. Now, why did the lamb have to die? God is a just God. He cannot help it. It is in his nature. He is just, which means he has to judge every single sin, even the littlest sin. If he lets the little sin slide, he's got to give a little, give, let the other one slide. And silence equals consent, which means he has to be cons- consenting to it. If there's a judge downtown, he's letting all the criminals off the hook, he's going to get a reputation of a corrupt judge. So that's been implanted in each of us so much that every police drama you see on television starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes. Like NCIS, right? And you're held captive the rest of the hour, wanting the person that did the injustice to be caught and brought to justice. That's what the whole theme of the show is. You've got to catch the bad guy. You've got to get justice. So in the first two minutes of the book of Genesis, an injustice is done. Cain kills Abel. God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was the crying? An injustice is done. Innocent Abel killed. You're a just God. You've got to judge the guy that did it. And so that's the only side of God that the devil knew. Lucifer? Right? He wanted to put his throne higher than the throne of God, like, like Kevin was talking about. And God said, you sinned against me, you're out. And so the devil comes into the garden and says, if I can get Adam and Eve to sin against God one time, God will have to judge him. Gets him to sin, stands back, you're a judge, God, you've got to judge him. And so God sends his fireball of judgment, but incepts the lamb and takes the hit. So God is just in that he judges every sin. He is love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Do you see it? And so, uh, the lamb, um, you know, it says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that, that day of crucifixion as if it was a thousand years. And the eternal, we deserve eternal damnation for our sins. And if Jesus took our place, what God did is take the cumulative judgment of all of ours and the duration of it, he condensed and increased the intensity of it. And it all was put upon Jesus on the cross. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. Because he saw that. I was reading the book of Revelation. And thought, why is, why is all this judgment happening? And it's, it's righteous and true are your judgments. It's God pouring down the judgment. Why? Once and for all, God has to settle the score and uh, judge every sin. that He you know. And so uh, you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there were these sins. You never judged them. No, he judges every sin. And so in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross so that we can approach God without any consciousness of sin. 
So there's somebody who says, I'm just going to, I'm good enough to go to heaven. It's like, God, dude, God has to judge every sin that you've ever done. Otherwise, he's an unjust God. And so if you're going to go without, without the lamb, he's got to judge you. That's why if you approach God with the lamb, you're saying the judgment was already paid. And Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was true. Right? Anyway, did you get an understanding of that? Did that bless you? I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor. What's amazing about Bill Federer is he's a storehouse of knowledge of American world history on and on and on, but his great passion is the gospel. Uh, so, so profoundly spoken. Thank you. That blessed us. Let's all stand. Yeah. Would you join with me? I want to pray for Bill and, and uh, Kevin as we're all getting ready to go to Sacramento. And I'm going to ask that you guys just keep us in prayer. Uh, Monday and Tuesday we'll be up there. Uh, and that this would be the epicenter of, a, of a, a great revival in the state of California. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this day. And I thank you for Kevin. I thank you for Bill. I thank you for the men and women who will be coming together at Church United and the press conference that Kevin's going to oversee. And Lord, as we are going before power, speaking truth to power, that it's, it's not the few ruling the many. It's, it's, a, it's a bottom up. We the people. And we're going up to declare that. We're going up to stand in relation to that. And we're grateful, God, that you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And no weapon fashioned against us will stand. And so, Lord, in obedience, we go forward. And we're just so grateful to realize that if God is for us, who and what can be against us? And we know the answer is no one and nothing. And so, Lord, thank you for that. I pray your protection on Bill's family, on Kevin's family, and all who are involved with Church United. But Lord, I, I want to take this moment to thank you before this congregation, this great privilege that you've entrusted that we would have an opportunity to once again step into the civic arena because these men and women who know your word and stand upon your word have faithfully supported the implementation of that word in our community and our culture. And so God, what a great privilege to be a pastor of a church of men and women who understand that and stand and support that. So Lord, I pray your richest blessing upon the men and women present. Thank you for this church. And Lord, all glory, honor, and praise goes to you. And so we thank you ultimately in Jesus' name. Amen.